Look, our brains are great at lots of things, but remembering passwords is not one of them, especially not secure passwords. Let's free our brains from being password managers and get something way better. 1Password. 1Password keeps everything private and in sync across multiple devices. 1Password can't see the passwords or sensitive information you store in 1Password, so they can't use it, share it, or sell it, and neither can anyone else. I've been using 1Password for about 10 years now, and it's made my life so much easier, especially using it with Touch ID and Face ID. It's the first thing I install on any new phone, computer, or tablet I'm using for myself or my family. And all you have to remember is one strong account password that protects everything else your logins, your credit cards, secure notes, or the office Wi-Fi password. And I love that something I use to save me so many hours I can't even count them all is something you can try too. Right now, my listeners get a free two-week trial at onepassword.com slash beyond for your growing business. That's two free weeks at onepassword.com slash beyond. Don't let security slow your business down. Go to onepassword.com slash beyond. And welcome to another episode of Beyond the To-Do List. I'm your host, Eric Fisher, and this is the show where we have conversations with people who've produced positive results towards achieving their goals. Our goal for this show is that you will listen and learn to do the same. This week, we're talking with Jeff Goins. He's a writer, a blogger, an author, and a speaker, and recently wrote a book called Wrecked. When a Broken World Slams into Your Comfortable Life. Jeff and I talked a lot about the process of claiming yourself to be a writer and then living up to that expectation. We also talked about content creation, specifically with writing, although it could apply to anything, not just as something that you do, but also something that you are as part of the gifts and the abilities and the person that you are and claiming to be that and not just claiming it, accepting who you are as a person, as a content creator, as a creative person or just in general, not uh, not being afraid to live the life that you may be afraid to live right now. In other words, asking yourself, what would that dream job be and why are you afraid to reach out and grab it and be that and make that happen. I hope that you enjoy this conversation with Jeff. I know that I did. Well, it's my privilege to introduce to you this week author, blogger, speaker, but especially a writer, Jeff Goings. Jeff, welcome to the show. Hey, Eric. Good to be with you. Thanks. So like I just said, you're you're a blogger, you're an author, you're a speaker, but mostly you are a writer, which incidentally is one of the names of your books. So how long have you been writing? Well, I've been writing my whole life, um, you know, but it was always something, you know, that you might call like an avocation. It was just this thing that I did for fun. It was a hobby. And I never took it really seriously because uh, I think like most of us who are uh, gifted at something or called to do something, we go, oh, that's just something that I do, you know, on the side. And I was always pretty good at it. I always got A's in English and liked writing, um, but never took it super seriously. And then um, about six years ago, I started writing on a blog and I started writing and publishing uh, magazine articles very intermittently. Like I think my first piece got published um, like 2008, but I just started doing this and, and I started liking it. But again, I was like, no, 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 I'm not a writer. I'm just someone who writes. I mean, I would literally not claim that title, which probably sounds ridiculous, but, uh, to anybody who's a writer or who's kind of flirted with this idea of being called to write in any sort of serious capacity, uh, there's this fear of, of claiming that title and then about almost two years ago, um, about a year and three quarters ago, I had a conversation with a friend and he asked me what my dream was. And uh, after sort of some hemming and hawing about it, I said, you know, I, I guess it's to be a writer. And he looked at me with a quizzical look and he said, 
Well, you don't have to want to be a writer. You are a writer. You just need to write. And that's what kind of sent me on this journey of claiming myself as a writer, um, starting a new blog, getting a publishing contract. A lot of amazing things happened. And I credit it really to that simple affirmation from a friend. You said that was about two years ago? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you'd been writing up till that point for how long? Seven years or so? Yeah, yeah. Like in terms of consciously doing it where you were were enjoying it, you liked to write, but you weren't a writer. Like how long was that period? Yeah, I mean probably, yeah, about six or seven years. Uh, I wasn't an English major in college or anything, uh, but I was a writing tutor, uh, which, you know, is kind of odd. I mean all the other writing tutors were English majors except for me. And, um, yeah, I'd been writing my whole life, but really seriously writing in any sort of professional setting. Uh, I'd been doing it for about six years, but it was very infrequent. You know, I would only write to get published. I would write a piece, you know, and then wait three or four months and then try to write another piece. And I wasn't doing any writing in between, but I really wanted to be an author. I really wanted to publish books. And I asked everybody what the secret was because I figured out how to get published in magazines. And they said, you have to write every day. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, what's the real secret? Mm -hmm. So uh, when I made this decision to be a writer, I did what Stephen Pressfield calls turning pro, where Mm -hmm. I just started acting like more of a professional as if this were a job that I had to get up and do every day. So kind of like fake it till you make it. Yeah. Kind of psych yourself into it and then suddenly you realize you are. Yeah, yeah, and I think the difference for artists is you probably are already that thing that you want to call yourself. You're just afraid to name it. And so it's not even so much a fake. I mean, you're faking yourself out, but the truth is you've done a lot of the work already. But yeah, I mean, just a change of mind. Uh, Pressfield says you have to turn pro in your head first before you can do it on the page. And uh, that's what happened with me is I didn't just start calling myself a writer and you know passing around business cards. I called myself a writer and I was like, oh gosh, I better act like it now. Mm-hmm. And, and so I started writing every day. And that was a big shift for me in terms of how seriously I was taking it. And it was also a big shift in the quality of my work. Yeah, definitely. So then at what point in time in all this did you start Goings Writer, your blog? Um, so that was a blog that started... I mean, that was like a month or two after I had this conversation with this friend. It was uh, late one night. I had this static. I'd been blogging all over the place for about six years and never really saw any success and tried a bunch of different things. Like a lot of people, you know, you start a blog, you get bored and you feel like you got to start a new one. And uh, I had this like static uh, WordPress site where, um, you know, I had put a, a collection of links to all these pieces that I had published and I treated it like a portfolio site for uh, the the intent was to get more freelance writing gigs, although it was never really successful in that. And so late one night, you know, I skyped one of my you know geek friends on the West Coast, and I said, "How do I set up a, a website that I can have full control over?" And and he kind of walked me through the process, and I stayed up till about three or four a.m. and then launched that website the next day. And that was February of of two thousand eleven. Oh wow. And then in pre-roll, we kind of talked about how I had first noticed you and followed you on Twitter when people were kind of raving about your PodCamp Nashville in March 2011, your session. So you you launched that blog like right before that. Yeah. I've pretty much followed you the whole time you've done that blog. Yeah, yeah. Which is kind of an outstanding amazement for me because I've kind of watched the progress. So that's great. Yep. So then – the blog was basically born out of declaring yourself a writer and you kind of then said, okay, well, I better start acting like it. Yeah, yeah. It was um, it was a place for me to start acting like a pro and stop playing the amateur. And so for me, what that meant was uh, I need to have a serious, you know, professional, personally branded website. And so, you know, technically what that meant was a self-hosted WordPress site and, you know, all of the you know, gadgets that come along with that and, 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 you know, shoving out a little bit of money to make, um, an investment into that just, you know, in terms of hosting and and that sort of thing. But for me, that was a big deal because it meant, well, like this is, this is real. And so, yeah, that's, it came out of that declaration and really that pressure that I felt to actually do something about it and not just sit around and wait for something to happen. Great. So then which comes next, the writer's manifesto or you are a writer? 
The Writer's Manifesto. Okay. So I, yeah, I, I wrote for that blog uh, for several months and, you know, saw kind of this slow, steady increase in traffic. And then I had heard about people, um, you know, publishing ebooks and then giving them away in exchange for people's email addresses. And the story of my blog is basically the story of me dragging my feet. You know, I had helped people learn how to blog and start blogs and write for blogs for years. I, I work for a nonprofit organization and that's part of what I've done is uh, helped people tell their stories through blogs. So I felt like I knew something, right? And so the process of me starting this blog is basically me admitting that I don't know much and trying out all these things that everybody says you ought to be doing. And I was just like, yeah, 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 whatever. And just trying them out. And so the writer's manifesto was me trying out this whole idea of give an ebook away for free in exchange for people subscribing for your newsletter. So that happened in June of 2011. So how successful was that? Yeah, it was surprisingly really successful. Uh, I mean, to be frank, you know, the, the manifesto is short. It's 900 words. And I, I think manifesto should be short, but that's really short. You know, it's an article. And that's what I had done. I went, found an old article on my blog that not a lot of people had read and not a lot of people were reading my blog at that time anyway. Um, and I had a newsletter list of about 75 people. And so I, I followed a, a blog post that Michael Hyatt had published about how to create an ebook in seven steps. And I just followed that to the T and created this ebook based on this article and then asked some people on Twitter if they'd be willing to review it. And I got maybe 20 or 30 people to do that. And then I started emailing it around to people asking if they'd be interested in endorsing it because I knew that was important. And um, and then I launched it, you know, two weeks later. And that week, my newsletter list grew from 75 subscribers to over 1,000. That's pretty significant. Yeah, it was really, I mean, it was really exciting for me. Um, any any writer, I think, who's, you know, not made it big time would love to have 1,000 new readers, you know, in a course of a week. Yeah, definitely. Still searching for a great candidate for your company? Don't search, just match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch that busy work. Instead, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. I wish I had Indeed when I was in the hiring process in roles in the past because it is a slow, arduous headache of a process to find the right people, or at least it used to be, join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to find and hire great talent fast. In fact, in the minute I've been talking to you, 23 hires were made on Indeed, according to Indeed data worldwide. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash to-do list. Just go to Indeed.com slash to-do list right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash to-do list. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's something that works so well, it basically feels like magic. For me, I'm thinking air conditioning, noise-canceling headphones, definitely. Meeting-free Fridays. What about selling with Shopify? Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your own shop stage to the first real store stage, you don't have to just sell your own stuff anymore. With Shopify Collective, you can curate products to sell from brands you love and give your customers more variety and your business more sales. Shopify is your no excuses business partner. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Shopify also helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms and sell more with less effort. Thanks to Shopify magic, your AI powered all-star sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash beyond. Again, go to shopify.com slash beyond now to grow your business. No matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash beyond. So then the next big kind of milestone or maybe one of them there's probably others that I don't know about is you are a writer so start acting like one yeah yeah so that was an ebook that came out the following year um uh I got April of 2012 what's the premise of that now I mean I read that I got it the day it came out I believe and read through it in a day it's yeah. not long but it's definitely longer than the writer's manifesto the attention grabbing headline 
of the you know the title itself kind of explains it. But how would you further explain it and maybe entice somebody to read that? I, I think that I don't write about writing. I mean, a lot of people think, well, you know, if I'm not a writer, I'm not going to uh, read your stuff. And, and I think that's fine. Uh, obviously, the context for everything that I write about is writing. But I think I'm really writing about things like passion, identity, calling. And so you're a writer is really about this idea of follow your dream, follow your passion. And it may be something as simple as, as doing what I did. I mean, it really is the story that we're talking about right now of believing that you are something uh, and pursuing that and acting as if that were true. Like you said, fake it till you make it, although I think most people have already made it. They're just afraid to name it. Mm. And um, start acting like it. And I think the paradox that I've found is some people won't believe that you are an ex, that you are a writer or an artist or a podcaster or whatever until you do. And, and I think that that is a really important part in, of, of this journey of you know, becoming whatever we're going to become. You know, what I found is lots of people were affirming me and I still didn't believe it. And I think a lot of people who are talented and gifted at something can uh, resonate with that. People go, oh, you are, you're good at this. You know, you write our Christmas letter every year and you're just great at that. You're a great writer. And you go, oh, no, 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 no. That's just something that I do. And so your writer is about this uh, decision to not just say, oh, that's something that I do, but to go, yeah, this is who I am. This is what I was created to do in life. And then some of the really practical steps that I took to um, make that a reality, build a platform, get published. Uh, it, it's basically a book that I wrote so that if somebody wanted to sit down and you know we were going to have coffee for an hour, this is what I would tell you. And I, I have lots of writers who ask to do this. And um, I try to do that as much as I can, but I can't do that with everybody. And so I wrote that ebook, uh, which is pretty cheap. Um, I wrote that as a way for you to kind of get that information. So then if somebody has just read that and say they want to claim that, whether that's a writer or a podcaster or whatever, you know, fill in the you are a fill in the blank, but they don't feel very organized or secure in themselves. What would be maybe your first step to maybe help them get over some of those feelings of doubt? Well, I mean, first of all, I would just say join the club, <laughs> you know, uh, most of us don't know what we're doing. You know, most of us are insecure about something. Um, I think if fear were reason enough to not pursue your calling, then the world would be a pretty boring place and uh, we wouldn't have any amazing stories of breakthrough. I think most great stories, most great movies and books are about people who aren't 100% sure about something but do it anyway. And, and so I think there is part of that, uh, part of this that you just sort of have to figure out a way to do it. Um, I'm a fan of just taking very small steps um, I love what Seth Godin said about this once where he, uh, he just – it was a short little blog post and he talked about the importance of practice and he augmented that and said it's even more important to practice in public because if you practice in public and you fail in public, people are watching and it's a good thing because it, it forces you to bring your A game. And so I would just encourage people to practice in public, find ways to write and publish uh, pieces that um, people are going to see. And blogging is a great way to do that. It happens to be the cheapest, easiest way to do it. It's not the only way to do it, but it's it's a pretty good start to just start putting your work out there and see how you know it, it resonates with people. Not necessarily for them, but for you because it'll force you to grow and really start taking things seriously. So, I mean, other than making the actual declaration, declaring yourself that you're a writer and you do that however you know, whatever works for you. Sometimes I encourage people to write it down in their notebook or diary or whatever, but make some sort of declaration where you go, okay, like I'm going to remember this day for the rest of my life. I'm going to remember my life before and after it. And, and the two are going to look very different. So create a milestone in your, your timeline of your life. And then you yeah. see a visible, you know, transformation from beforehand to after. I think so. And it really is just a change of, of mind, you know, and, and I don't want to, you know, it doesn't have to be melodramatic and I don't want to freak people out and, you know, I'm not all like new agey and stuff. I just think that your words 
have importance and you need to um, consider that you may have been deflecting what is a good natural gift that you need to just start claiming it and just go, yeah, okay, this is something that I love doing. It's something that I would love to do more of. I'm going to own that and I'm going to believe it and I'm going to start acting like it. Speaking of Seth Godin, I know that at one point he had said when he was being asked, and I know you've quoted this in a blog before, that knowing, let's see, I'm going to butcher this, but basically knowing what cereal Stephen King eats doesn't make you the same writer he is. Mm-hmm. Something along the lines of that. Yeah. And so then obviously me asking you questions about, you know, hey, well, how does Jeff Goings do this or that and and write so well because of it isn't necessarily going to translate to everybody. But obviously the pres- premise of this show is to talk to people about productivity and, and how they're doing the things they're doing, how they're meeting sure. the goals. And so I'd love to ask you some questions regarding – your blogging and writing workflow, not so much that people will copy you, but so that they hear you answer and it shakes loose ideas for them to formulate their own style or routine or whatever that works for them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I love that. I, I, I love what Seth said about that because I think essentially what he was saying was if you try what everybody says you ought to try or follow the same path that Stephen King or Seth Godin or you know Eric Fisher or whoever says that you should follow, and you don't see the same results. Okay, good. Like, welcome to the club. Um, you're not supposed to because you're not them, and they've worked out their own weird, quirky ways to be productive and achieve the results that they uh, had hoped for, or or maybe you know hadn't hoped for, and it just happened anyway. Uh, but I love. I mean, I love reading stories about how writers you know, kind of figure out their own little quirky systems. And then I just kind of extrapolate from that. I glean things that are relevant to me. And there are lots of things that aren't because I'm like, that'll never work for me. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I love that because I think that, you know, our stories can kind of help spur each other on. Yeah, def- well, and exactly. It's it's not so much, you know, how one person did, you know, one thing and succeed in, in their goals. Yeah. It's, I mean, like I love hearing, for example, I told Michael that, hi at this, that I love the fact that he shares all these different failures that he's had. Mm-hmm. And you're like, how did you do that? You're Michael Hyatt. How did you have all these failures? That's why he is who he is. It's because right. – and I don't have to – like, for example, he said something about going bankrupt and, and all that. And I <laughs> I hear that and I'm like, yeah. oh, well, now I think that's finally sunk in for me to how to not go bankrupt. And I don't have to learn that because in my, in, in my own story because I learned it from hearing his story. And mm-hmm. so – and actually one of the other things that just occurred to me was it's kind of like the whole – thing where you you learn the rules of writing so that you learn how to break them effectively. Yeah, right. So. Absolutely. So then how are you are you you're blogging daily, is that right? Well, or is it I, mostly daily? I I was uh I've scaled back. I mean, I'm blogging now uh you know, two or three or four times a week. Okay. Um so still pretty frequently, not daily. I was doing it 7 days a week for almost a year. Then I kind of pulled back to to 5. Now I'm sort of in this, um, you know, holding pattern, just trying to figure out uh, what I want to say. The thing that I'm not doing that I that I used to do before is I'm not rushing to get something out. If I miss a day, I just go, okay, like I'm not gonna I'm not gonna kill myself over this. Uh, I'm just gonna make tomorrow that much better. The audience is still there waiting. Yeah, but I mean, I, I'm not gonna go a month with, or even a week without blogging. I just may not do it. You know, five or six times a week, I might do it two or three. Right. Well, and obviously with publishing uh, wrecked as well as some of the projects you're working on right now, which I'd like to talk about in a little bit, yeah, um, those take up more precedence. Exactly. So, well, then how along the lines of, of Goings Writer and your blog specifically, how do you capture the ideas as they come to you? Like is it where you're out and about and you write it down in your phone or is it in a quiet morning or evening time? Or do you have like a designated writing time? Like how are you capturing and then fleshing out those ideas later on? Well, I used to believe this myth, which was this, that good ideas come when you least expect it and you better be ready to grab them. Otherwise, you're going to disappear forever. I don't really believe that anymore. Uh, there's this great episode of Mad Men, um, and I, I happen to love that show, mm-hmm. where one of the copywriters is um, 
is in the office late at night and he's and he's writing something he's drinking you know on the job which is kind of you know typical for that era or at least you know that's what the, the picture that mad men paints and and he's and he right and he's like he has this brilliant idea and his eyes open and it's this big epiphany he goes i got it and then the next scene is him kind of you know he fell asleep in the office and he's slouched over on the couch asleep um you know wakes up hungover and he's rushing and he's trying to find the paper that he wrote that thing on and 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 he's, he has a meeting to go meet with you know Don Draper the creative director and share his idea and he can't can't find it cuz he didn't write it down and so he's so shamefaced and he goes into the office and um you know Don asks him for the idea and he can't give it to him and the other copywriter's like tell him tell him cuz she knows what happened and he goes uh you know I had this great idea and I lost it and and Don goes oh man I hate it when that happens and um, you know, and and there's this really real moment where this cop, low, lowly copywriter connects with this creative director, and they're both creative human beings who lose track of ideas. And uh, everybody can relate to that, right? Like you have this huge epiphany in the shower, going for a walk, and you forget it. Uh, I used to really beat myself up for that, thinking that I had these moments of brilliance that I couldn't capture. Um, now I I don't really have that that take on things. If an idea comes to me, I'll write it down. But if it comes and goes, I assume a couple of things. One, if it's really good, it'll come back. Uh, two, um, you know, maybe it wasn't that that good after all, or a better idea will replace it when I sit down to do the work. And uh, I am, you know, in particular, somebody who's kind of prone to workaholism, and so I have to say, okay, like there's times when I'm working and there's times when I'm not. And yeah, if a really great idea comes down, I can write it down great, but I'm not going to kill myself over it. Um, there's a great TED Talk uh, that Elizabeth Gilbert, the author of Eat, Pray, Love, uh, does. It's one of my favorite TED Talks. And she tells this story about creativity as more of a craft than an art, which is to say, you show up, you do your work, you close your laptop, and, and you go home. And some days it's just that practical. And so you sit down in the chair and wait for the ideas to come. And if they don't come, you just start typing. And as they come, use them. And um, she told this story about a musician like Leonard Cohen or somebody, and he's driving down the road, and he gets this brilliant melody, but he can't write it down, right? Like he gets this idea just as he's driving, which is when we get a lot of our ideas, right. when, we're, when we're not at a point where we can actually act on them. And he looks up to the heavens, you know, up to God or the muse or whomever he thinks is giving him this idea, and he says, excuse me, sir, can't you see I'm driving? <laughs> And and he just he just kind of says forget it like if it's good enough it'll, you'll you'll send it to me again and um, I love that you know I I love the idea that uh, creativity happens um, when we need it to happen and I don't kill myself over the ideas because frankly I get more ideas the more I work and so I'm never at a point where I don't have ideas. Uh, but if I need an idea, I'll sit down and I'll work. I won't wait to be inspired to write. I'll start writing and then I'll get inspired. So then I, I know that people ask you a lot, like, what your writing schedule is. And I know you don't really like structure per se, but you like routine. And I know that you wrote a post recently, especially about your morning routine. Would you like to establish that a little bit? That's actually one of the questions I usually ask right up front hmm. is, how would you ideally start your day in, a, in an ideal world? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I wrote that post, and then ironically, the next day, life was so hectic that I was like, uh, I didn't do any of. I had like a ten-point checklist on my morning routine. I didn't do any of those things. That was something that I wrote, kind of in reflection on how do I do spend most mornings, and that's kind of what I came up with. Um, but since writing that post, I've felt this um, pressure, in a good way, to adhere to that. And so I, I don't like schedules. I don't like structure. But at the same time, I recognize my need for these things. So, um, yeah, so I, on an average day, on a good day, uh, and I did this today. It wasn't, it didn't come naturally to me, but I, I disciplined myself to do it. I'll wake up uh, in some some random order. I'll do these things. I'll eat breakfast, uh, drink coffee, uh, read a little bit, write a little bit, and um, drink a bunch of water. I'm a big fan of staying hydrated. And so I'll drink, you know, a liter or two of water, like right off, off the bat, maybe not two, maybe one liter. Um, and, uh, I'll usually go for a walk. I'll take the dog around the block. I didn't do that this morning, but I'll do that after we talk, you know, shower and, uh, just get my day started. And it's, I mean, it's a simple routine, but it, it helps me 
uh, later on in the day feel like I've done some of the most important things, which for me are reading, writing, uh, you know, bathing myself, uh, getting, getting a little bit of exercise. I mean, they're just really simple things. I found that when I like, you know, shoot for the stars with these things, I, I do them for a week and then I just, it's too hard to sustain. Um, but yeah, I mean, I try to, the thing that I try to do before anything, and some days I'm more successful than others, but I try to write before anything else, before I check my email or check social media, just write something. And for me, it's not about, how much I write or even for how long it's just the fact that I do it and I do it today and I'll do it tomorrow and I'll do it the day after that all I'm trying to do is reinforce a habit and build upon you know creative muscle that I've started to establish and there's some days where I really stretch that where I'll write for you know two or three hours when I have the opportunity to do that in other days it will literally be 10 or 15 minutes but at least you're you're getting it in there yeah, I mean, think of it like getting into shape, you know? Some days you just show up and you do what you can and and then there's tomorrow. Some days and you th- run and some days you t- just take the walk. Right. And that actually reminds me of my favorite C.S. Lewis quote, which is uh, – he and I'm going to paraphrase. He says, when you wake up first thing in the morning and all of the day's thoughts rush at you like wild animals and you have to beat them off with a stick and then you – have to to push your attention to that higher other life. Hmm. And then it's just that like, I mean, I've had that happen where you first thing in the morning, you just feel like suddenly this rush of anxiety potentially where, oh my gosh, I've got all this stuff I've got to do today. But by backing up and stepping away from that, like, you know, getting rid of the dogs and focusing on the priorities or at least easing your, your way in, you know, that's where you get this with the routine. Yeah. I mean, he was somebody who took a daily walk no matter what. And I've, um, I used to run a lot and I still go to the gym and try to work out a few times a week. But now I walk every single day, um, not for exercise as much for the sake of slowing down. Uh, walking forces me to notice things that I would nor- normally rush past. And so, you know, it's, it's also kind of the season of life that we're in. It's, you know, the dog needs to go for a walk. Uh, I can take, I can put my son who's, you know, a uh, three month old, I can put him in the uh, stroller and walk him around the block and he can fall asleep, you know, so I'm kind of multitasking. Uh, but it forces me to slow down. A lot of times I won't take my phone with me cause I'll be just be checking it the whole time. Mm-hmm. And so I like doing that in the morning because it allows me to just kind of slow down all of that rush of ideas and chill out, you know, and, and, and let my mind wander and, you know, spend some time praying or just thinking and uh, giving myself a little bit of peace before the craziness starts. Speaking of your son uh, and you saying that he was – he's three months now? Yes. So that means about a year ago was when you found out that he was going to be on his way. Yeah. Where were you at in the process of writing Wrecked? Had that started yet? It had just started. I was maybe a few weeks in at that point. How it's, did the news affect you and your thoughts of, oh my gosh, how do went you know, how did did you freak out or did you say, Okay, well now I've got a timeline to get this done before he shows up? Yeah, I didn't freak out. I mean I already had a deadline. Um I was it was great news. I was I was thrilled. Um it did inform my writing of the book. And I think you'll see that in the book. The book is really mm-hmm. uh my journey of of transitioning from one season of life to the next and and being grateful through that transition at this point in life when really a few years ago I would have dreaded it. And the transition is from adventure to commitment. And for the longest time I thought commitment was selling out. It was uh, settling down. It was basically resigning to a boring life. And now I don't see it that way. And in fact, uh, you know, you mentioned C.S. Lewis and he talks about kind of how life naturally slows down life and love and all of these big time thrills they get quieter as we get older and he says that's a good thing because who wants to constantly have butterflies in their stomach that is an uneasy feeling and we forget that about you know things like falling in love and and you know having amazing experiences is there's a lot of anxiety that comes with that and later on in life is not boring but commitment is this steadier thing in your life and having a kid having a wife having a house all of these things uh, reinforce this idea to me that it's okay for life to slow down a little bit. Doesn't mean that the adventure is ending. It just means that you know a new chapter is beginning. And so I think that realization informed the writing of the book. I didn't 
intend to end up there. I didn't intend to end up in commitment, but that's where I got it, probably because of where I was at in, in this season of, of life. That was some of the best stuff as I was reading it. And uh, like, for example, there's a quote here. Uh, there's a profound spiritual value in making commitments by moving to a more committed lifestyle. You learn how to be a friend, meet a deadline, follow through on a task and push through a challenge. Commitments help us become better people. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's just true. I mean, that's been true for me, I should say, and, I've, and true for you because you wrote it. Yeah, absolutely. Certainly true for me. And, um, you know, some people might read that and go, duh. But, <laughs> but for me, I mean, commitment has been the biggest struggle in my life because I felt like it was diametrically opposed to living an adventurous, interesting story. And I've found that, um, yeah, I mean, there are some things that you have to sacrifice when you commit to certain activities or places or people. Uh, but there is also this this beauty found in those commitments, and there's this freedom within within the commitment. And it's you know restricted freedom, but there is no other kind. And uh, so you know, for me, it was kind of this realization of I can commit to stuff. And, you know, like still live what I think is an adventurous life. But there is, you know, there is an exchange that has to happen. I can't have it all. And um, that's actually a good thing. It's a grace. It's God showing us that we're, you know, we have limitations. And so we need to focus on the things that really, really matter. Another quote here, some assignments in life require more than a season to come to fruition. Certain forms of greatness take time. They require blood, sweat, and tears before you see the harvest. This could be a job, a class, or a relationship, but we all eventually face a decision that requires something that costs us dearly. Mm. Just that whole concept to me, I hadn't thought about it consciously, I guess, until till reading the book, was the whole concept of taking on seasonal commitments and how profound that can actually be. Yeah. Um, to me, that's the answer to what do I do if I'm in this, I'm at this point, wherever you are in life. Although, you know, I find that a lot of people who are in their 20s and 30s are, are sort of struggling with this is, um, okay, I realize that I can't just pick up and leave and travel the world necessarily. Or maybe I can, but um, they're at this point in life where they're, you know, they're not 20 years old anymore and, and, and the world isn't necessarily their oyster. They're, there's a job, there are things that they have to do, but they're scared about jumping into like, this is going to be my life for the next 25 years, whatever it is, right? So like, what is the in-between? And I think committing to something for a season is a good, healthy in-between. And this is how my wife and I process most commitments. You know, if we're going to decide to make a change in our life, uh, you know, whether it be like, going to a new new church or, I don't know, hanging out with a group of friends, uh, anything that, uh, and I, I do this even with like, um, you know, writing projects or we do this a lot at my work with work projects, we'll give it a season, you know, which is sometimes a few months um, and we'll try it out. And if it takes off, then we'll keep trying it out. But if not, we'll give ourselves permission to go, we tried that. It didn't work. We tried it for a season, not for a week or a day. You know, we tried it for a significant time and it just didn't work out. And so now we're going to move on to something else. But the idea is that some seasons will turn into lifetime commitments and that that's a good thing. Speaking of wrecked, because we haven't actually we've talked around it, but sure. if say somebody is standing there in the, the book aisle and they see it and they're looking at the back cover and you kind of walk up behind them – what do you hope somebody has written as a review or you know somebody has referenced you know a friend has referred them to the book what do you hope they've said about the book that will make them make that purchase yeah well uh <laughs> i can tell you i mean that's a tough question to answer i can tell you what um people have said that has surprised me and has really you know honored me and and the work that i put into writing the book um, I honestly didn't know how people would respond to it. I felt like it, in some sense it was a lot of jumbled thoughts about my ideas of compassion, commitment, adventure, a meaningful life. Um, and, and so I just kind of, you know, I didn't know. But um, some things that people have said that have really uh, just surprised me are things like, this is the best book I've ever read. I mean, that every author wants to hear that, but to actually hear it is kind of jarring. 
I, I think what I, I've enjoyed hearing are things like, uh, I mean, that's been great, obviously, but more specifically, this caused me to think differently about my life or commitment, you know, or how I approach relationships with people and with God. Um, you know, some of the biggest compliments that I, I've received are uh, are from people who aren't Christians. I mean, I, I'm a Christian and I reference some of my faith in the book, although I didn't necessarily write it for people who share that paradigm, although, you know, although you'll probably see some of that in there inevitably. But I mean, I have friends who are atheists or you know, Orthodox Jews who have read it and said, man, I didn't expect this to speak to me, but it really did. And I don't know why, but I, that's just, to me, that says something about the work that it's transcendent in some sense, where it's not just about me and my experience and you entering my world. Um, there's something in the writing of it. There was something inspired by it, hopefully, that um, speaks to people, you know, where they're at. And so, yeah, I mean, those are those are some examples of things that have um, that I've really appreciated hearing, and I love the idea that this concept can be relevant to somebody who's twenty five or fifty or seventy five. That you know, you need you need to be wrecked. You need to realize that your life is not just about you and what you want, and that this is a constant progression and process in life of us um, doing things that we don't necessarily want to do, but we ought to do, and growing through those experiences. Well, I know that my personal testimony as far as the book goes is it very much did uh, make me reassess, take a look at my life and say, you know, at what points have I been wrecked and, and what, at what points have I maybe grown a little desensitized to that? You know, how is my worldview now versus where it was five, ten years ago in regards to this, in regards to my place in the world, my place in helping others, my goals – are, am I completely just being selfish in my life or am I actually trying to do good work and help people regardless of you know my station in life, et cetera? So it really did help me out. Yeah, that's great. I, I appreciate that. Um, you mentioned being desensitized and there's one story in the book that I tell is about this woman named Carrie uh, who's a friend of mine who lives in Uganda and has lived there for the past several years. And um, she's just telling me, you know, kind of, atrocities that she sees every day. And at one point I asked her, are you sort of desensitized to what you see now? I mean, she told me about the government knocking down this whole community of widows' homes, uh, you know, one day. And I said, are, are you numb to what you've seen? And she said, she said, no. She said, to suggest that I'm numb or desensitized means that I don't feel anything when I see these things. And I still feel something. It bothers me. It really does bother me. And, and so, you know, but the course of action that I take is different. You know, I don't break down and cry every time I see something because it, she said, she said, it doesn't, you know, it bothers me, but what I would say is it no longer surprises me. And so it's still, I'm still not okay with it, but, but I'm not surprised by it either. And so I think we can all relate to becoming desensitized to certain needs in the world and in some way. And I think there's that that fine line between not caring and just not being surprised. And so to me, Carrie kind of represents this embodiment of what it means to be wrecked in a very healthy way. She's committed to a cause for more than a season. You know, she'll probably be in Uganda for the rest of her life or at least for a very long time. She just married a Ugandan man. She's no longer surprised by what she sees, but she's not numb. You know, she is getting up every day. She's doing the work. And um, some days are, are better than others, but she's committed to that process and she's still allowing her heart to be broken in, in the midst of something that could, uh, frankly, cause her to go numb. Yeah. Well, Brecht has been a pretty big success, I would say, right? I mean, uh, you were yeah, in the I mean, top of Amazon sales for a while. How far yeah, did it, it get? Uh, it was in the top 100 for two weeks and um, it was – uh, it got as high as number 18 on Amazon and number 14 uh, on Barnes & Noble. So talk a little bit about maybe the strategy for the release or the promotion of it and, and how you enlisted and engaged with getting the help of your tribe to push that out there. Yeah, well, we did a few things, and, and they're by no means new things. I just kind of looked around at what other people were doing. You mentioned Michael Hyde. He was somebody whose book launch I – uh, modeled some things after and just kind of borrowed from other 
people's methods, what I'd seen work and what I thought would work for my tribe. Um, but, you know, really succinctly, we uh, launch, you know, had a launch team. We had a, a group of over 100 people who were interested in helping be a part of the book launch. This is something that you had to apply for. Not everybody made it. So I, I handpicked everybody that was a part of that group. Um, we had a big incentive for the the release week. So if you bought the book the week it came out, there was this whole slew of uh, digital products that you got for free that added up to something like $158 worth of free stuff. So that was kind of an irresistible deal. Um, you know, buy a book for 14 bucks, get $150 worth of stuff. Uh, on top of that, we, we did a couple of other interesting things. You know, I guess posted on as many blogs as I could, did some interviews. And then we, we did a kind of a cool thing where, you know, the whole point of Rect is most people can identify with an experience like this. And so I wanted a way of capturing those experiences. And so on our book site, wreckthebook.com, we had a place, we still have a place where you can go and submit your story. And so that was a cool way to kind of involve a larger community in the process of launching this book, telling the story, and also giving people an opportunity to have the sense of shared ownership in the project. Um, so yeah, I mean, those were, those were kind of some of the, the big things that we did for the first week. Uh, and then the second week we did kind of, uh, kind of a risky thing where we, we made the ebook only 99 cents for a week. And the idea was the first week, get the tribe to buy in and reward them with all of this free stuff. The second week, we'll try to use um, that momentum to get more people to buy the book who, you know, maybe wouldn't give it a shot for 10 bucks or 13 bucks, but would give it a shot for 99 cents. And uh, we didn't want to give it away for free just because I'd done that before and I wanted to try something different. And and we wanted to, you know, get a lot of people. We wanted to get the book into a lot of people's hands for a low cost. We wanted them to pay something so they felt like, you know, they were invested and would actually read it. And uh, that was just another way that we tried to spread the message. And both of those weeks were really successful sales-wise. Great. Yeah, I, I actually gifted the, during the 99-cent week, especially because you were trying to put uh, – Oh, the book the the book series that will not be mentioned into the crosshairs. <laughs> uh-huh. So I kind of bought into that. I was like, oh, that's a really good goal. Yeah. So, uh, but I gifted a couple of the ninety nine cent Kindle editions to some friends, and they they really enjoyed it. So, great, thanks. What new products are you working on right now? Yeah, the big one I'm working on is a course, an online course for writers. Um, it's called Tribe Writers, TribeWriters dot com, and it's basically a course to help. Uh, writers find their tribes, and if that's kind of you know foreign, uh, speak to you. You know, tribe is just this idea of an you know a very close group of followers that help you reach more people, and so I, that's what I've done. You know, that's how I've um, established a, a writing career pretty quickly. Is uh, I learned how to write for an audience. I learned how to capture attention. And then use that attention to get more attention from other people. So it's this eight-week course about the craft of writing and why um, the internet changes that. And so really how to blog and write for an audience, not just you know write as if you're writing a book and publishing it on, on the web, which a lot of people do and it's, it can't be very successful. So really kind of reassessing the craft of writing uh, for a web audience um, and then using a lot of you know online social media to – uh, build a, an audience quickly, um, and then use that to get published or you know accomplish whatever your goals are. Sell books, you know, get speaking gigs, whatever it is. So just about finished up with that. Yeah. So, do you have any kind of a pricing scheme, or should, people just should go to tribewriters.com and and sign up to get notified? Yeah, I haven't released the price yet, so I'm keeping that on the download okay. mostly because I'm, I'm testing things out and trying to figure out what what's a good fit but that'll release uh soon probably around the time that people are hearing this and um what i'll be doing is uh first releasing it at a pretty low price for a charter group for people to kind of go through the course i've never released it before so i want people to go through it tell me what they think about it so that i can then make it better um but yeah i mean they can go to tribewriters.com and they can get the first lesson for free just by dropping their email in there and they'll get notified you know the next time the course opens up Great. So then, if you're if you're listening to this, uh, say September fifteenth, nineteenth, something like that, two thousand twelve, go to tribewriters.com and sign up to be a beta tester, basically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Awesome. 
Well, do you have any other words of advice or you know for would-be writers or just people in general working on things in the internet content world? Well, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of of Seth Godin as you mentioned before and uh one of his uh adages that I've really adopted on on a daily basis is um stop stalling. And I think a lot of what we do as, you know, people who are looking for creative or creative solutions to productivity or getting things done or accomplishing our goals is we stall, you know, and the way that we stall is by absorbing more information. And I love information. I create a lot of content. I'm a big fan of podcasts and radio shows and audiobooks um, and, you know, real books and blogs and all kinds of things. But there comes a point where you don't need another conversation. You don't need another piece of content you just need permission, uh, which comes from you, by the way. Mm-hmm. You just need permission to do the thing that you know you need to do. And so I can't tell you how many writers I get phone calls from or meet for coffee or get emails from on a daily basis and weekly basis, and they want the secret. And they'll spend two or three hours talking about the secret when they can be spending two or three hours just doing it, just doing the work. And so that's my encouragement to you. That's my encouragement to me, it's a, a challenge to if you know what you need to do, and you probably do, just start doing it. And you can learn along the way. I mean, I'm not saying don't learn, but don't stall. I think that's a perfect place to end. So, Jeff, thanks again for coming on the show. Where would you suggest people start going to other than tribewriters.com? Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks for having me, Eric. Um, yeah, my blog you mentioned is goinswriter.com, and that's just like coins with a G, G-O-I-N-S, writer.com. People can go there. There's a big fat box uh, as soon as you go to that website where you can drop your email in and get signed up for my free newsletter. That's kind of my inner circle, my tribe. I give people lots of free stuff. You can get a free copy of the Writer's Manifesto as soon as you sign up for that. So that's where I'd encourage people to go. Great. Again, thank you for coming on the show. We'll talk to you later. Yeah, thanks, Eric. Well, I'd like to say thanks again to Jeff Goings for joining me this week. Again, check out Jeff's stuff over at goinswriter.com, as well as checking out his tribewriters.com to get in on that exclusive deal where you can get the first lesson for free. Thank you so much for enjoying the show. I hope that you are getting a lot out of it. Please feel free to leave me comments in the show notes for this episode, letting me know what you have gotten out of it specifically or tweet me at eric with a k the letter j f-i-s-h-e-r on twitter if you're enjoying the show please tweet it out or share it on facebook as well as leaving a rating or review over in itunes so that others that have not found the show yet can find it and we would greatly appreciate it thanks again till next time i'm eric fisher Hey, thanks for listening to the end. If you're looking for a show to start helping you apply these productivity lessons on your business, check out Millionaire University. It's real lessons from real entrepreneurs teaching you what you need to know to improve your business or start one if you've been putting it off. It covers all aspects of business from starting, marketing, growing, managing, and everything in between, wearing all the hats. And as an added bonus, I am conducting a number of those conversations, those interviews. So you'll fit right in. Again, that's Millionaire University. Just search for it in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this podcast.